0: Good morning. If you will, please turn to the book of Colossians. We're going to be in chapter 1 and part of chapter 2. If you're with the children's ministry, you are excused. There should be some teachers in the back who would love to encourage you. A, uh, a f- if you need a Bible, also raise your hand. A Bible will come to you. Magically, a uh, a famous Christian author wrote these words. He said, or he wrote, "I think the besetting sin of pastors, especially evangelical pastors, is." Okay, don't 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 answer. Just think it and tread lightly. All right, I, I grew up when everyone got a trophy. Okay. The besetting sin of pastors, especially evangelical pastors, is, according to this pastor and writer, the sin of impatience. The author went on to write, pastors have a goal, a mission. Pastors are going to change the world, evangelize everyone, do all the good stuff and fill our churches, and it's wonderful. All the goals are right. But here's the problem ministry is slow slow work it's soul work and so the temptation because of the sin of impatience the the temptation is to take according to this author and i think he's right the temptation is to take shortcuts right you've heard all the shortcuts right just read this book follow this plan all right, we're going to mcfranchise the church. Money back guarantee. All shortcuts. Our impatience incentivizes us to take shortcuts. Now, I don't think it's just me. I don't think it's just pastors. I don't think this gets pastors off the hook. But I think it's all of us, right? We're all tempted to look for spiritual shortcuts. I mean, after all, right, the path of least resistance, the, the path of ease, the, the path with the fewest obstacles, I mean, that's a tempting path to take spiritually, isn't it? But, but you see, the symbol of Christianity, the, this sort of center of Christian theology, it's not a couch, it's a cross, isn't it? And so in light of that, there's no shortcuts, is there? We can't get around the cross of Christ, as we'll soon see. So the big idea behind me in uh, these few verses in the book of Colossians is this. The minister, the ministry, and the membership center, must center themselves on Christ. The minister, the ministry, and the membership center on Christ. All right, now, to, in order to kind of get to this idea, I want to look at three things, okay? Which very much go in light of this big idea. So one, I want to look at the pain of ministry. Second, the aim of ministry. And third, the gain of ministry. You like that, don't you, right? The pain, aim, and gain of ministry. So look look there in verse 24. Chapter 1, verse 24. We'll read through chapter 2, verse 5. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of his mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all energy that he powerfully works within me. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. So, once again, Paul is our author. And he writes this short letter to encourage this small church in order to be faithful in light of false teachers, kind of getting them off kilter. And so here, starting in verse 24, after explaining the, the sort of supremacy of Christ for all of life, we saw that in verses 15 through 23, after kind of just, just kind of throwing the, the, the imminent, preeminent amazingness of Christ, Paul now writes about not just the supremacy of Christ for all of life, but now he narrows in on the supremacy of Christ in his ministry. So uh, after we we look at this ministry The first thing Paul wants us to see is that ministry, and particularly his ministry, it's filled with pain. Look look there in verse 24. He writes, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Then if you go down to verse 29, we read this, For this I toil struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great of a struggle I have for you and for those that lay out to see you, for those who have not seen me face to face. See all those descriptive words, toil, struggle, hardship, affliction. That was the flavor of Paul's ministry. It was filled with hardship, toil, struggle, pain. Now, this shouldn't surprise us. It shouldn't surprise us, especially in light of Paul's conversion. Do you guys remember Paul? Paul, the great persecutor of the church, he's on the road to Damascus, and he meets Christ, and Christ speaks these words, right? Paul, who was first Saul, Christ speaks to him and says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? So Jesus makes clear on the road that when Paul persecuted the church, Paul was in effect persecuting Christ. And then after this exchange, right, Paul sort of gets it, or at least he gets it in small part. And Christ speaks these prophetic words over Paul. He says, I will show Paul how much he must suffer for my sake. So Paul's life It's marked by suffering. Now, he suffered in a general way, in a sort of human way. But the suffering in this text, it's a particular suffering, isn't it? Right? It's a suffering and toiling and hardship in ministry, right? It's, I rejoice in my suffering for your sake, for the church's sake, right? That that the sort of locus of this suffering is the church. It's ministerial suffering. Last week, I was walking down the stairs, and I stepped on a Lego, and I promise you, I experienced suffering. But, but that's, a, that's not what Paul's talking about. He's not talking about general suffering. He's talking about a particular suffering. It's the suffering and affliction and trial that comes at the hands of gospel ministry. Right, The sort of suffering that happens when you preach the gospel, and people reject you. It's the sort of suffering that happens when you try to disciple someone and encourage someone and they decide that they don't want to be your friends anymore. It's the sort of suffering that comes from a sleepless night in intercessory prayer for your loved ones. It's God calling you to leave the church you love and to go to another church. It's that sort of trial and suffering in which Paul is talking about. Now, now, lest you feel sorry for Paul. Look at how Paul describes this hardship and trial and suffering. Verse 24. He rejoices. Right? This isn't a sort of masochistic in any way, right? Paul's not a glutton for punishment. But Paul... Sort of starting in his conversion up to the point of writing this letter, he has learned that suffering, sacrifices, trials, and struggle in the midst of gospel ministry for the sake of the church has brought him joy. Paul, as he as he suffers for the sake of these churches, Paul has experiences. Paul experiences just the richness of union with Christ. That's, that, that's what's going on in this, the latter part of verse 24, right? But P- Paul writes um, that, that his suffering filled up what is lacking in regard to Christ's affliction, w- which is a weird phrase, okay? And I promise you this, it is one of the most contested verses in the New Testament, a lot of commentaries have spilled a lot of ink on explaining what this is. But what we know that it does not mean is that Paul's suffering in some way added to Christ's work. That's not what this is meaning. But at kind of a bare minimum, what this is meaning is that Paul is connecting his suffering with Christ's suffering. Which, which makes sense, right? right? The more we suffer in ministry well, the more you can understand a bit of Christ's suffering. We we even see in verse 29, he connects Paul, once again, toiling with Christ's powerful work within Paul. Ministry is never painless. But Paul reminds us here that neither is it pointless. Paul doesn't grumble. He he doesn't complain about ministry. He, He doesn't you know, run from his pain. He doesn't just talk about how he has ministerial PTSD, right? Paul's not Eeyore. He's not Mary Martyr. Instead, what he is, is he turns every ministerial suffering and hardship into an opportunity to experience a deeper intimacy with Christ Jesus. He experiences joy even through his gospel ministry suffering. Now, maybe you're wondering, like, okay, what does this have to do with me, right? Maybe you're thinking, I mean, I'm not a pastor, I'm not an elder, I'm not a minister. How in the world does this apply to me? Well, you might not be any of those things. But if you are a Christian, that means you have been drafted into gospel ministry. And so I promise you this, that as you make disciples, as you share the gospel, you will experience some level of ministerial pain. And I'm here to say that at the end of the day, it is all worth it, that there is joy in that reality. Uh, About 10 years ago, my wife and daughter and I, we moved into a fraternity. And if that sounds exotic, it was horrible in, in a lot of regards, okay? We would wake up some days to uh, to people stealing things, and uh, you know we would wake up in the middle of the night because someone who was not making great choices set off the fire alarm. And so there I am at three in the morning in January with my six month old, you know, in the car as we had to wait forty minutes for the fire department to get there. It smelled. That uh, there was this awkward relationship between us and the fraternity, like my wife and I and daughter lived with eighty-five boys, and very few of them were Christians, and yet that's why we were there. We were making all these sacrifices in order to preach Christ to this fraternity. And then Logan became a Christian, and then Blake began to disciple people. And then Jake began to share the gospel. And though there were nights in which my wife and I had to sleep in the living room on the floor because the apartment was so cramped, I promise you, it was all worth it in the end. I would do it all over again tenfold for the sake of Logan and Jake and Blake. You see, there is an experience of communion with Christ that is uniquely learned in the midst of the pain of ministering. Right? Praying is hard work. Evangelism, terrifying work. Serving, often lonely work. Or think of just hospitality. If you practice hospitality, I promise you at some point you will be taken advantage of. Or give financially, give graciously. I promise you some people will treat you like an ATM. Share the gospel and people will reject you. Show up in someone's life to encourage you and they'll tell you that that was intrusive. Doing gospel ministry is never painless. And yet, there is joy uniquely held out. Uh, You know, many of you know uh, the kind of prophetic suffering uh, servant uh, verses in Isaiah. And one of them is that Christ, this coming uh, suffering servant, would be afflicted and oppressed, yet he wouldn't open his mouth. Now, we know that intellectually. We can understand that verse. And yet, if you've never been in a situation in which it would be to your advantage to defend yourself, you don't really know experientially what that was like for Christ, do you? It's only when gossiping is to your advantage and would make you look great and you decide, I'm not going to gossip or I'm not going to my, make myself look good. It's only there that you realize in a deeper way what Christ did for you in keeping his mouth shut, even though he could give the greatest defense heaven would ever know. Paul would later write, What's more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom sake I have lost everything that I might gain Christ. Ministry collectively, as we make disciples, share the gospel, as we pursue each other, bear each other's burdens, encourage one another, all of the work that we together collectively do. It's not easy work. But I promise you this, it is amazing work because as you do it, you will experience uniquely aspects of Christ that you will not learn anywhere else. That's one of the blessings that Paul holds out, that he says, I did all of this for the church. And in so doing, not only did I encourage the church, but he learned in a deeper way and had deeper communion with Christ. So first, Paul experienced the sort of pain of ministry. But now second, Paul points us to the aim of ministry. Look there at verse 25. So Paul, Paul makes clear that he is a, a minister of the gospel. He, he is a minister of the gospel by the stewardship of God. He's sort of giving his apostolic credentials against these false teachers. But what's his aim? Like What's Paul's aim in ministry? Now, before, before we get there, I just want to just remind us, like I said last week, that, that the kind of occasion of this letter is that there are these teachers who are teaching false teaching that, that, you know, they, they've got the, the insider scoop on Christianity, that there's some mystical new teaching that maybe even Paul was hiding, right? These false teachers specialize not in cryptocurrency, but in sort of a, a crypto spirituality. And so Paul wants to demystify Their mystery. And so uh, Paul tells the church really clearly what his aim is. Right, Paul's aim, verse 25, is to make the word of God fully known. You just keep reading. Verse 26, he wants to make known a mystery. With, With all the riches of glory, verse 27, a mystery. If you're wondering, the mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So Paul's aim, his ministerial aim, is to proclaim, to preach, to teach Christ. That's the mystery. He wants to, verse 27, warn everyone and teach everyone. And in so doing, present everyone mature in Christ. That's the aim. Paul's aim is to preach, proclaim Christ as clearly as he can in contrast to those other teachers. So Paul sort of has a, a, a dual aim, right? He wants to warn against falsehood, but at the same time he wants to preach clearly who Christ is, what Christ has done, and the purity of that gospel message. Verse twenty seven. What is that mystery? What what is the essence of the, the teaching that he wants? To just infect this entire church? Well, the sort of high mark of this section is verse twenty seven. The idea of Christ in you, the hope of glory. When you think of Paul's kind of theology and kind of the the, the climax or the culmination or the high point of Paul's theology, it really is union with Christ. I mean, Paul talks all the time about this whole idea of that we are in Christ, in Christ, or that Christ is in us. And that's the ministry, or that's the mystery that Paul is trying to communicate that we are in Christ. But here he wants to use the metaphor a little bit differently. He says that Christ is in us. So, more important than a message that says, oh, if you believe Christ, you don't go to hell. That's true, but that's not the central teaching here. More important than an avoidance of hell is the idea that in Christ you have union with him. Now, what does that mean? That, that seems abstract, mystical. What does it mean that Christ is in you? Well, what this means is that when a man or a woman puts their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and is regenerate, born again, that Christ is not some distant model to follow. That the Christ doesn't say, great, now follow me at a distance. No, Christ then, by the power of the Spirit, actually comes to reside in you. Christ lives in us through the Spirit. So union is the spiritual connection between Christ and his people such that the church is truly in Christ and Christ is truly in the church. which I might add means that because of this union, because of this connection between Christ and his people, it, it means that the message of Christianity is not do better, try harder. The essential message that Paul's preaching is not moralistic. Well, if you just tried harder, if you just did better, if you just avoided these sorts of things and added these sorts of practices, then everything would be fine. Moralistic preaching is not compatible with Biblical Christianity. Instead, look at what Paul is saying. He's saying that in light of Christ, this true identity is given to us. This identity of being adopted children in the family of God. So the message is not do better, try harder. Instead, the message is live in light of your identity in Christ, live as those who have who have royal identity, live as those who have been adopted into God's family through Christ by the power of the spirit. Now you guys know this. I'm a big advocate of reading, okay, and I love reading in general because I in many ways want people to read, particularly the Bible okay there's my agenda. It's on the table, okay? And so, from early on, I've tried to brainwash my kids into readers, okay? I've got three boys and a girl, okay? And I recently heard my daughter telling someone else, they were having this conversation, and I heard my daughter say, I'm a Brucker, which means I read a lot of books, (laughs) okay? Now, I love this. Why? Because I have been trying to give her this identity, and she is embracing this identity, Well, how much more so for Christianity, right? We have this identity in Christ, and our calling as a church is to embrace it and to live in light of it. And so this is why Paul is preaching the gospel. And notice, Paul is not just preaching the gospel to the unconverted. Here, he's preaching the gospel, Christ in you, the hope of glory. He's preaching about union with Christ to Christians. So we need the gospel as Christians, as the church, just as much as non-Christians do. The gospel not only saves us, it also sanctifies us. The gospel matures us and grows us. And so as Christians, we need to rehearse who we are in Christ because of Christ's work on a cross for us. Because we have all this other voices, right? Like, all of us talk too much. Now, what I mean is, all of us have that inner voice in our minds and we're talking too much and we're listening too much to those voices. Right? You, you know those voices, right? Those voices that, that, that say, you screwed up and that voice that says, you're just a fool. Or, or that voice when, when you don't say exactly the right word or the right phrase in a Bible study and you, that voice is like, oh, you're a heretic. Or that where you stumble and you sin and you hear that voice that says, you're, you're unworthy of the grace of Christ. You know those voices? It can't just be me. We all have those inner voices. And so we need to rehearse the voice of heaven in the person of Christ who says, you're mine. You're my son and daughter. We need a heavenly identity. That's what we need. We need a better voice, a voice from heaven who clarifies who we are and tells us who we are. And I think the primary way we do this is through the church, don't we? Right? We, don't, we, we do this individually, but then we do this collectively. We do this through lots of means, right? We, 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 we're in small groups and we're trying to remind ourselves of who we are. We, we get together one-on-one and we try to encourage each other and remind who we are in Christ. Bible studies, when we gather on a church on Sunday, all of it is meant and purposed to collectively push against our spiritual amnesia because we forget who we are. And when we do this, as we sort of rehearse the truths of our identity, as we meditate on our union with Christ, as we in faith claim those promises, we begin to mature. You really do. That's what verse 20. Look there in verse 20. It says, him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that, here's the purpose clause, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Our calling as a church is to preach all of Christ for all people, that they might in all ways be brought up to all of Christ. I like the all, right? You get the point. That's our aim, to preach and proclaim Christ so that having known him, having heard him, having worshipped him, having sung of him, we now strangely become more like him. And we need to remind this over and over and over again. Whatever that practice is for you, I would encourage you. I think music has a unique way of doing this. Music uniquely forms us and reminds us of who we are in Christ. Whatever it is, whatever practice you might have in your life, I would encourage you, find those people who will point you in word and deed to your true identity in Jesus. That's what Paul is trying to do here. His apostolic aim was to preach clearly Christ for this church in opposition of those who would want to muddle the truth of that. All right, so so who are you? Well, let me just put it this way. You, if you are a Christian, are who, sa- who Christ says you are. You're a sinner saved by grace, ripped away from an idolatrous embrace. You're rinsed by blood, saved from the flood, royal by heavenly decree, chosen by divine mystery. Pardoned as if you'd always obeyed, cleared as if you'd always stayed, regenerate with a new heart, given a completely new start. Oh yes, you're still a creature with all of its features. You're vulnerable, dependent, depraved, ignoring him most days in which you terribly misbehave. But worried you ought not to be. For God, the Father, On Calvary, fought to justify and adopt by his son's own blood, he now has bought and this new vision you now have caught. Now the world is going to claim your identity, suggesting their need to clarify thee. But God has eternally sought his affection on you, grafting you into the son's identity, and you're no longer guilty of sin because the father crushed his own kin. So what do you do? Well, you swim, basking in God's glory, flailing around as a child in the ultimate love story, breathing in and out his rejuvenating grace. Free at last, you are now what you will always be, united to he and blessed with heavenly identity. It doesn't have to be in poetry. It doesn't have to be in rhyme. But we must, as a church, rehearse the truths of the gospel, reminding us in word and deed of who we are. To the extent that we do this is the extent that we mature in Christ. Now last. Not only do we hear of the pain of ministry and the aim of ministry, now we've got the gain of ministry. Look there in chapter 2, verse 2. Paul continues to talk about his aim, but, but, but he, there's a, a subtle shift, right? And now it's about the gain of ministry. And this gain is about a community that are knit together in love. You see that? You see that there in verse two. Now, this whole idea of being knit together in love—that is kind of shorthand for a church that is unified. It's talking about the gain of this sort of ministry is a church that is unified together, that whose hearts are knit together like a uh, like a woven tapestry. Verse two, Paul. Paul, he's suffering, he's preaching, he's proclaiming Christ so that they might mature, but he's doing so in order that they might gain and be encouraged, verse 2, that they might be knit together in love, verse 2, that they might reach the riches of the full assurance of understanding, verse 2, so that they might gain the knowledge of God's mystery, which is, once again, Christ, who in all in Christ is all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He wants them not to be deluded, and he wants them to be of good order, he wants them rooted firmly in the faith of Christ Jesus, verse 5. So Paul works tirelessly. He's suffering, he's preaching the gospel, he has sleepless nights, he sometimes goes without food. Why? Because he wants them to know Christ and then be bonded together and unified in Christ. I personally think there's always an ever-present temptation to unify a church around things that you're against, right? We're the church that's against that teacher or we're the church that's against that policy or we're against the church that's against those politics or we're the church that are against this, that, and other. Paul doesn't do that. Now, Paul clearly in two places here says you must preach against false teaching but the identity isn't in that you're anti-false teaching. He roots his identity and the unity that is found in the church in the mystery of the gospel, namely Christ. You See that? See that in verse 5. See that in verse 4. To truly knit a church's hearts together, men and women from various um, ethnicities, uh, different preferences, to truly knit hearts together, you must knit those hearts together in Christ. Which is why he reiterates it in verse 4, right? He, he wants their affections to be in Christ so that they might not be deluded into plausible arguments. We have many opinions in this church about lots of different topics. And, and, and some of them are like, cute, right? Your favorite football team, whatever. We don't really care about this. But honestly, there are lots of things that these are not issues of indifference. Th- these are issues that we deeply believe and we have come to deep convictions on, right? Th- things like how are we going to educate our kids? Or th- th- things like, um, like the, the extent of racism right now. And what we should do about it. Or um, things like, right, the last two years, right? These are not just things that we're just neutral or indifferent. No, these are things that we've come to conclusions on. So, so, so what do we do? Well, I'll give you one example. One more example. Uh, when I came to Puyallup, I learned something. And I learned that as a community, and this is a stereotype, it's a generalization, but I learned that people in this community, broadly speaking, generally speaking, enjoy guns. Now, m- my upbringing, I'm afraid of guns, okay? When I see a gun pulled out, I want to hide under a bed, okay? When I grew up in the sort of, you know, just the, the culture I grew up um, Bad people owned guns, good people own security alarms, okay? That, that's, that's the discipleship I got growing up. And so I know that I am biased and I know I am prejudiced because whenever I turn on the news and I see another school shooting, it just cements a particular view of guns that I don't want more kids to die, right? Now, I know that. You all might think I'm nuts, as I might think of some of you are nuts, and this is not just a, oh, agree disagree. No, these are real issues. But here's the wonderful thing. And I'm just saying this because this has nothing to do with me. I could just broadly make you the hero of this story. I have never been to a small group, Bible study, or any of your homes in which you flaunted a gun in my face. Never. Why? Because you love me and you tolerate me. And I thank you for that. Because, broadly speaking, we are not... Unified. Our hearts are not knit around our view of guns. Our hearts are knit around something way more powerful. And that's his point. If you knit a church and their heart around anything else, I don't care what it is, it's not steady, is it, right? And it's really uh, exclusive, right? If you're outside of that, right? If it's only, let's say, public school or private school or home school, well, then you can only have those people in this. But but if there are things outside of God's commands, well, then it it, it makes the church way more inclusive. And it doesn't rock the boat when your opinion sways or when you're having discussions because, well, your identity with these people, your, your unity with these people was not based on an affinity or a like or a preference or even an important conviction in your life. It was on something way more powerful than that. And we know what that is. Look there in, back in verse 15. Like this is this really is the song that kind of frames the unity, right? Right? Christ is the invisible God, the firstborn of a creation. In him all things Hold together, right? In heaven and earth, visible and invisible, right? Dominions, authorities. I mean, you talk about this Christ. He is over everything. He is all in all. That's the sort of Christ that our unity is in. So if you put your unity in that, in Christ, the unshakable Christ, then you can tolerate me. And I can tolerate you. Because we're here, not because of our affinity. We're here because of Christ. Because we love Christ, we want to mature in Christ. And maybe, maybe, the best thing for my maturity in Christ and your maturity, Christ, is that we don't always agree. Maybe the way we actually grow and mature is by disagreeing so that we can learn how to humbly listen to one another. The posture of, maybe I'm wrong. And that's Christ's point here. Verse 5, Paul writes, and you really do get Paul's heart here. Though I'm absent in the body, yet I'm with you in spirit. Rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith. So not only does Paul rejoice in his suffering, he rejoices that they are firm in Christ. Communal firmness. Where does it come from? In Christ. That's the gain. If you want a church knit together in love, whose hearts and affections are one, it comes through the power of putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, looking more to Christ than all the things that might divide us. Right? The the things that disunify us are small in light of the things that unify us and that thing is Jesus Christ. So this path that Paul lays out, there's no shortcuts, okay? The shortcut is that he's going to suffer. So here, here's, here's my sort of encouragement to us all. Here's the game plan, if you want to know, for 2022, right? We're going to do ministry and we're going to rejoice even when it's hard. Two, we're going to continue to preach Christ to the Christian, to the non-Christian, and every sphere of life, we're going to just continually put out Christ to all people and fight for the purity of, of Christ and we will ne- let nothing get in between our unity Bounded and founded and knit together in Christ. There's the game plan. That's Paul's ministry blueprint. Preach Christ, live in light of Christ, and be united in Christ. There's always going to be a shortcut. You know, there's always going to be a temptation to to find a workaround. There isn't one. The hope of glory namely Christ, is all we've got. Let's pray. Lord, we, um, we, we are just utterly amazed. And we probably should be even more amazed at the work that you've wrought in our lives. Lord, we, we thank you that it is not our personalities or lack of personalities that that brings us together as a church, but it is our commitment to live life together in Christ that makes this a a weapon against the kingdom of darkness. So Lord, help us as a church to wield that weapon uh, with better fidelity. Help us to know in a deeper way the love that is in Christ. And I pray, Lord, that we would go deeper into our identity in your son and that we wouldn't trade it for any other identity. We pray all this in your son's name, amen.